0: This is Climate Justice Radio. Hello, and welcome back to Climate Justice Radio, a podcast by Climate Justice Toronto. Climate Justice Radio is a podcast that covers a wide range of issues connected to climate justice. My name is Amanda Harvey Sanchez, and I use she and her pronouns. My name is Julia De Silva, and I use she and her pronouns. And we'll be your hosts for the episode.
1: You're listening to our Divestment Generation mini series, a five-episode series exploring the nine-year campaign to win fossil fuel divestment at the University of Toronto. This is our intro to the series, where we're going to introduce you to the scope and motivations of the Divestment Generation series, and some of the key actors and events that come up in later episodes. You may find it helpful to return to this introduction as you listen to episodes one to five, as well as the linked resources in the show notes.
0: First, Julia and I would both like to introduce ourselves with our land stories. Land stories are a practice used in CJTO meetings to reflect on our personal relationship to the lands where we reside and how this informs our organizing work. So I've lived in Toronto all of my life, but my sense of place here is something that has often felt disjointed. My father was born in Toronto, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, the Wendat, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. He grew up with adopted parents of Scottish and English descent. My father only found his birth mother later in life, and he never looked for his birth father, but both are, to my knowledge, of white European ancestry. My father is estranged from much of his family, and so I grew up with limited contact with my paternal grandparents and extended family in Canada. I often wonder how a more collectively-oriented culture in so-called Canadian society might have differently shaped this outcome for me. My mother was born in Mexico City, the traditional territory of multiple Nahua indigenous groups, and a city built by Spanish colonizers atop the ruins of Tenochtitlan, the former capital of the Aztec Empire. My mother immigrated to Toronto, Canada in 1981. She is the second youngest of four sisters and the only one in the family to begin a new life in another country. The history of colonization in Mexico is both similar and different to other parts of North America. Dark-skinned people like my mother face colorism and racism within Mexico and in other countries, including Canada and the U.S. Still, non-Indigenous and non-Black Mexicans like my mother also benefit from the nation-building political project of Mesizaje, which sought to erase Indigenous and Black presence in Mexico and forge the image of a unified, mixed, or mestizo political subject. As the daughter of a Mestiza Mexican-born woman and a white Canadian-born man, I am mixed race through multiple trajectories of colonization across Turtle Island. I'm often perceived differently in different parts of the continent and regions of the world. Sometimes the way I'm received and treated by others is also shaped in part by which colonial language I speak, English, Spanish, or French. I'm also a beneficiary of white privilege, the freedom of movement across colonial borders granted by my Canadian citizenship and access to stolen land in Toronto, where I was born and have lived as a settler my entire life. I grew up with access to urban green spaces in the city of Toronto and the economic resources to travel and explore Canada's vast natural beauty on family trips with my parents as a child. An avid environmentalist, my father fostered in me from a young age a sense of curiosity, playfulness, and responsibility towards the natural world. These are positive attributes I developed, however, without any understanding of the intertwining histories of settler colonialism, white environmentalism, and indigenous dispossession on the very same lands I explored freely as a child. It was my mother's profound empathy and generosity, exhibited equally in her care for relatives in Mexico and strangers she encountered in Canada, that predisposed me towards an interest in social justice causes. Growing up as an only child and the child of an immigrant, I often found myself feeling lonely and struggling with a sense of belonging and rootedness in the world. That changed dramatically after I joined the fossil fuel divestment campaign at the University of Toronto in January of 2015, when I was 18 years old. For the first time in my life, I had a political home and a family, a sense of belonging and a community of people who taught me how to think of the climate crisis in new and creative ways. Because of those formative experiences in my adolescence and childhood, I am now a climate justice organizer, activist, researcher, and an educator. My deep love and gratitude for the people who brought me to this point inspired me to make this podcast.
1: So my maternal grandparents settled on unceded Algonquin and Anishinaabe territory in Ottawa in the 50s after moving from Portugal. And my ancestors on my father's side immigrated from Ireland and France at various points in the 19th century and settled mostly on the traditional territory of the Mi'kmaq Nation, so-called Nova Scotia, governed by the peace and friendship treaties made between the British Mi'kmaq and Maliseet. Before I was born, my mother and father had both moved to this area known as Tkaronto or Toronto. Tkaronto is the traditional sovereign territory of many indigenous nations, including the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and the Huron-Wendat. As well as many other nations recorded and unrecorded and the current treaty holders are the mississaugas of the new credit first nation and this territory is subject of the dish with one spoon wampum belt covenant an agreement between the Anishinabe and hodenosaunee that binds them to peaceably share and care for the great lakes region as settlers we come to this land by treaty 13 also known as the toronto purchase between the crown and mississaugas So my maternal grandfather worked for the Canadian Mint back in Ottawa, and my paternal grandfather from a coal mining town in Cape Breton worked in a coal mine all of his life. And sometimes I think about those as kind of almost two ends of this project of extractivism that defines how the Canadian state is structured. I had a very, very little uh, kind of general sense of family history growing up. And since both my parents lived away from our extended family, little connection to a geographically centered community or any uh, sense of connection to land that that might bring. And it wasn't really until I went back to stay with my relatives in Portugal after finishing high school, which happened, uh, this was in 2016, um, to be the summer of the worst forest fires in living memory, which have continued to worsen every year. And uh, in particular, staying in the small town where my cousins uh, live uh, felt for the first time this kind of visceral sense of destruction that wasn't abstract, that was intricately bound up in our experience of being on the land in the specific place that we are. And my existence as a settler without that sense of connection up until that point had largely sheltered me from what that destruction felt like and how it was embodied. So I began organizing uh, with the divestment campaign very shortly after in the fall of 2016, when I started at U of T. I actually met Amanda at the Toronto meetup for a 350 action in Ottawa called Climate 101, which was a youth civil civil disobedience action against the Trans Mountain Pipeline, uh, then Kinder Morgan. And U of T 350 at that point had largely disbanded. um, And that fall I founded Leap U of T, uh, which eventually took up the campaign. So thinking about how land stories like these relate to the focus of this series, um, the divestment campaign, One thing that I've always found powerful to highlight is this conception of the university as a very particular nexus of colonial extraction. Um, So it's materially supported by extraction through investments in the fossil fuel industry, as well as existence on stolen land, and as a site where students are trained within those relationships, um, perpetuating them potentially, and as a site of extraction themselves, knowledge extraction for use by the capitalist economy. So divestment organizing kind of became this place-based entry point where a lot of students and young organizers, including myself, first started grappling with those material realities, um, the power dynamics, the extractive relationships that define the particular place we're living in. And I'm currently located um, in so-called Vancouver on the territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples, so now very close uh, to where the Canadian state is still, six years later, working to push the Trans Mountain Pipeline through unceded territory, um, which is just one of many destructive projects taking place in this immediate area. And I think of the meaningful land story um, or land acknowledgement as part of a refusal to allow that state to define the terms on which we relate to others. While recognizing its reality and the violence it continues to perpetuate. And when we refuse those terms, we take on the responsibility for redefining those relationships, which implies a commitment to working in solidarity towards liberation in our climate justice work and all the other work we do on stolen land. You're listening to Climate Justice Radio, a podcast hosted by Climate Justice Toronto. We are building an irresistible movement to confront the climate crisis by addressing its root causes, capitalism, colonialism, and white supremacy. So, Amanda, why this miniseries, and how did this idea come about?
0: So, this idea for this podcast is actually something I've been thinking about for a long time, and I would say it's the result of a constellation of events I started my Ph.D. program in 2020 and I was taking a course called Genealogies of Anthropological Thought and in that course we were reading and thinking about lineages of different philosophical traditions and interventions, modes of resistance, and how all of that shapes the present. So this got me thinking about activist genealogies and the lines of convergence and descent out of which present day movements emerge. Concurrently, I was also getting back into community organizing in Toronto after having lived abroad for almost a year, and I was meeting so many new organizers who came into the climate justice movement post-2019 after the global climate strike. Many of them had so much promise, so much joy, so much potential, but also very few role models and mentors that they could turn to for advice, guidance, and personal growth. At this time some folks in climate justice toronto were also talking about what some people call movement elders and so i was wondering what does a movement elder look like in the youth wing of the climate justice movement then of course merrick gertler the president of u of t announced that u of t was divesting from fossil fuels in october of 2021 so we actually won the campaign And at this time, I was working with my PhD supervisor as an RA on this interdisciplinary research project called Discovering University Worlds. So my supervisor knew that I had been a leading organizer on the fossil fuel divestment campaign at U of T during my undergrad. And so she asked me if I would be interested in creating a timeline of the campaign as a kind of public archive of student activism on divestment and climate justice more broadly. I very hesitantly said yes. And truthfully, I actually procrastinated for a very long time in making this timeline because I was afraid of revisiting some of the more painful moments of like difficult moments in the campaign. And when I finally pushed past that fear and began working on the timeline, that's when I was able to revisit the campaign with fresh eyes. And I could actually see just how much we had accomplished and also how personally transformative this campaign was for me in terms of my own life trajectory. So having insider knowledge of the campaign was obviously invaluable in making this timeline, but I still couldn't do it by myself. I needed to consult with a lot of the other people I had worked with at the time in 2015, 2016. But more importantly, I also had to consult with people who worked on the campaign before and after me. So filling in the timeline was a deeply collaborative and humbling process. Seeing everyone's comments in the Google Doc, the links to pictures, emails in my inbox with private meeting minutes and other resources, as well as messages from former and current divestment organizers thanking me for developing the timeline. All of this made me want to take it to the next level. And that's when I reached out to you, Julia, and asked if you would be interested in collaborating with me on a podcast, which I was calling Divestment Generation. So I guess that kind of gives me a question for you, Julia, is like, why did you say yes when I asked you? Um, like, why did you want to take part in making this podcast with me?
1: Yeah, so um, divestment organizing was, I guess, in a lot of ways, the kind of core organizing uh, principle of my undergrad, the thing that kind of rooted everything else that I was doing during those four years. I was involved in a number of organizing spaces and campaigns, but everything I did, I kind of had this mindset of, how do I relate this to divestment strategy? How do we continue to build this? And it's where I made most of my friends and built my strongest relationships that time. But by the time the 2021 announcement came along, I had graduated well over a year before, and I was also pretty disillusioned in the sense of, not that I didn't think that divestment work was still really important, but I don't think any part of me actually believed that there could ever be a win or that I would ever hear news from <laughs> the T administration that was anything other than kind of abhorrent. So I'd come to see divestment organizing mostly as a useful tool or a starting place for doing campus climate justice work more broadly and was by that time just pretty relieved not to have my life centered on campus organizing anymore. And then we found out that we'd won. (laughs) And I started to feel like, especially I remember like that first day, these just wells of joy that I'd never expected to feel about anything the U of T administration ever did, including this, so it seemed really important to start unpacking everything we spent those years doing cuz something was something was producing this deep joy that I didn't know how to account for. <laughs> yeah, so why did you call it divestment generation?
0: Yeah, so for me I view divestment generation as really the group of people who grew up already aware of climate change. There, you know, We're past the climate denialism. We grew up hearing about this. Maybe we saw the Al Gore documentary or whatever, but we really became politicized and organized through campus fossil fuel divestment campaigns. So that's the divestment generation. And then within a divestment generation, there are several sub-generations. And that's because Turnover is high in youth and student movements, but institutional change is really slow. So that means that you can often have multiple successive groups of students that work on any one single campaign, like fossil fuel divestment at U of T.
1: Right, yeah. So at first, when we started talking about this, we were thinking about two divestment generations for the U of T campaign. One was that led by U of T 350 when you were actively involved, and then another when the campaign was led by Leap U of T when I was actively involved. But then once we started developing that plan more thoroughly, we both realized that each of those generations could be subdivided further, that there were a lot of people, say like current organizers, who even though I didn't graduate that long ago at all, I didn't know um, and were in a whole kind of different era for me in terms of just their political development. And there were people who had been organizing before you were involved, who you might have kind of only heard of. So
0: Yeah. So like the funny thing, too, is that most of the people in these generations don't even know each other. So the students in the fourth generation have no idea what was happening in the first generation and sometimes even generations that followed afterwards. So part of the idea with divestment generation is also that these are generations that are super compressed and oftentimes quite disconnected as well.
1: Yeah, I think it was really eye-opening for me to see how quickly that happens, because nine years is just not that long. And of course, the university administration and the people in power more broadly benefit from this lack of institutional memory on the part of activists, specifically student activists who are working on this very kind of compressed schedule. And if we're having to reinvent the wheel every three or four years, we waste a lot of time and resources,
0: and it's difficult to build long-term power. Right. So... With that context in mind, I can give us a little bit of an overview of how this mini-series is organized. So, episodes 1 to 4 are conversations with divestment organizers in each of the four divestment generations at U of T. So, Generation 1, we're treating loosely as folks involved during the campaign from its inception in 2012 until around 2014, with the People's Climate March in New York City being a significant end marker for that generation. Then Generation 2 is broadly folks involved in the campaign from 2014 to 2016, or post-People's Climate March until President Gertler's rejection of divestment and its immediate aftermath, and that's also the generation that I fall within. So Generation
1: 3, where I fall, includes folks involved in the campaign from 2016 until around 2019, ending around just before the start of the pandemic. And then generation four is folks involved from 2019 until the big win in October 2021 and its immediate aftermath. And then finally, uh, episode five is going to be an intergenerational conversation where we invite a couple of people from each of the prior episodes to meet one another and talk about key themes from the podcast, where they are now and the next steps for the climate justice movement.
0: Right, so for the best listening experience um, in this whole mini-series, and to ensure that you're really able to follow along most easily, we have two short recommended readings before listening to episode one. The first is the timeline of the campaign that I was telling you about, and second is a short article in Briarpatch Magazine, which is co-authored by myself, Amanda, and Sydney Lang, another former divestment organizer. And both of these readings are linked in the show notes. But for a shortened overview that you can just listen to here on the podcast to get some of the key dates and actors, I'm actually going to go ahead and just read a condensed timeline that I wrote as it was published in the Briar Patch piece. If you want to pull up that reading right now, you can follow along with me. So timeline of the campaign. 2012 to 2015. Set the agenda, understand the system, and take the bull by its horns. The University of Toronto fossil fuel divestment campaign began in June 2012, when a group of U of T students and community members founded the grassroots group Toronto 350, and later U of T 350, the campus branch of the group. U of T already had a policy on social and political issues with respect to university divestment, a set of procedures that prescribed how and when activists could raise issues about the university's harmful investments, and how and when the university would respond. UFT350 had to learn to navigate the institutional and bureaucratic channels set out in the policy. This included writing a brief to make the case for divestment, communicating with the president's ad hoc committee on divestment, and following the proceedings of the governing council. Alongside this, UFT350 worked with campus groups, student unions, and alumni to build broad support for fossil fuel divestment through letter writing, art builds, panel discussions, movie screenings, marches, and rallies. December 2015 to March 2016. When you think you've won, fight on. On December 15, 2015, the President's Ad Hoc Committee on Fossil Fuel Divestment published the report of the President's Advisory Committee on Divestment from Fossil Fuels, recommending, quote, targeted fossil fuel divestment. The announcement garnered widespread media attention and came to be known as the Toronto Principle. This was a huge win for the campaign. Following a brief meeting with the president in February, U of T350 published a community response. The response pushed to expand and refine the recommendations in the ad hoc committee's report and proposed new criteria to screen investments that account for indigenous rights. In the lead up to decision day, March 30th, 2016, U of T350 staged banner drops across campus with messages such as divestment is coming. March, 2016. Naivete and betrayal. On March 30, 2016, President Gertler rejected his own ad hoc committee's recommendation for targeted divestment and a report entitled "Beyond Divestment: Taking Decisive Action on Climate Change." While UFT 350 knew that this outcome was possible, it was still shocking. UFT 350 staged public demonstrations throughout April including an emergency rally for divestment outside a governing council meeting, while a U of T350 member addressed the president directly inside. Students and supporters were indignant, but they struggled to channel that anger into effective organizing. Struggling with burnout, internal ideological disagreements, and the graduation of many long-time organizers, U of T350 fizzled out as a group. Fall 2016 to 2021, new groups emerge and pick up the mantle. That fall, a new cohort of students founded Leap U of T as the U of T campus branch of the international nonprofit The Leap. Leap U of T set out to relaunch the U of T fossil fuel divestment campaign with a more explicit focus on the connections between climate justice and economic, social, and environmental justice. Leap U of T broadened its focus to include parallel campaigns targeting the federated colleges at U of T. In the fall of 2019, a group of students, faculty, and staff founded the Divestment and Beyond Coalition. October 2021, playing the long game, U of T divests. On October 27, 2021, in a letter to the U of T community, President Gertler announced that the University of Toronto was committing to divest from investments in fossil fuel companies and its endowment fund beginning immediately. It was a surprising but hard-won victory for the generations of students, faculty, and staff who had poured their hearts into striving for divestment. So stay
1: tuned for the next few episodes where we'll be hearing from organizers from each of these key moments. And we hope you enjoy listening to the Divestment Generation mini-series. Stay tuned for episode one of the Divestment Generation mini-series, where we'll be speaking with divestment organizers who were active during the campaign from its in- inception in 2012 until 2014, around the time of the People's Climate Park March in New York City. Climate Justice Radio is brought to you by Climate Justice Toronto. This mini-series features original music by Stefan Hegaret and editing by Stefan, Amanda, and Julia. The creators and co-hosts of the series are Amanda and Julia, special thanks to cjru radio and 2185 art collective for use of the recording space and equipment you can find all our socials and a link to sign up to join cjto at our website climatejusticeto.com. the transcript for this episode as well as other information and links mentioned in the podcast will be in our episode description thanks for tuning in remember to hit subscribe to be the first to be notified when we drop a new episode and if you've been enjoying this podcast feel free to leave a friendly review This episode was first aired on CJRU's Radio Everywhere program, which works in collaboration with community organizations to produce pieces that showcase the work they're doing and to provide a platform for them to tell their own stories. You can find out more about CJRU through the link in the show notes. In solidarity, Climate Justice Radio.